there's a word that is used in the Greek of the New Testament quite a few times. And I've really never heard anyone make a big deal out of this word, but it, it kind of became significant as I began to study it. And, and the Greek word is arche. The way we spell that is A-R-C-H-E with a little accent mark over it, if you look in a, like a Strong's Concordance. And it's most of the time translated beginning, the beginning of something. For example, in John 2.11, it says, this beginning of miracles Jesus did in Cana. There's a pattern involved. It's a pattern which is followed in building anything. Um, it's also, the, another meaning of the word is corner. Because when you're going to build a structure, one of the first things you establish is where the corners are. You want to get the corners right so that everything else can be attached to those points, those anchor points, corners, so it will be square and sturdy and well-made. So when we see Jesus teaching his disciples how to respond in various situations, he is establishing them in patterns of faith which are sustainable, which are solidly built as opposed to faddish. Like, oh, this looks good right now, but it may not be good in the storm. Oh, it looks really nice to do this, but how's it going to stand up long term? He was establishing them in... RK principles. How's this going to stand up over a period of time? We want to get the corners established here. And what Jesus was doing with his disciples was he was establishing the corners of the church. Those points of those anchor points in the church. Now, we could extrapolate that further and it would be right to say it that every Christian should pursue the kind of faith that others can attach themselves to. Others should be able to attach themselves to the kind of faith which we walk in, which we live out. So we ought to all be able to say, like Paul said, follow me as I follow Christ. We ought to all be corner people. We'll all be RK people so that our faith can be patterned um, in our children and in our children's children. That's what the Bible says. So I had, uh, I had been looking at a portion of Mark chapter 8, and I just began to see in this portion how God was setting in place some patterns of faith which are sustainable and would not be blown about in at times of storm, in times of challenge. One of the places that Judy and I visited on our journey was Billy Graham's personal library and memorial in Charlotte, North Carolina. I would encourage anyone to go there if, if you can. It really impacted me more than I anticipated. It was one of those things you kind of think as a Christian, well, okay. Judy wanted to go, and I thought, okay. But I was really, really impacted by it. And it included his gravesite and his wife's gravesite there together. Very, very precious. 
And uh, you may have read this or, or, or know this, that on her gravesite are words which she had read on a sign when they were driving together, and there was some road construction. And at the end of it, it said, end of construction, thank you for your patience. And she said, I want that on my tombstone. <laughs> and it's there. It's there on her tombstone. End of construction, thank you for your patience. But what impressed me most about their history and the photos of Billy Graham was his consistency. Just his consistency. He was never faddish. The only thing I, at all that I saw that even changed in, in any way was that as he got a little older, he grew his hair a little bit longer. Kind of like Wally Hoskin, just kind of let it flow a little bit, you know? Just kind of got a little bit longer there. But I mean, his message never changed. You see quotes from him in his very early days. Sounds like Billy Graham at the end of his life. Sound like the same, same message. His clothes, the clothes that he wore, they, they, they didn't, the style didn't seem to change through the years. There are photos of him all in the historical gallery. And I got to look at him and I thought, wow, he could have bought one suit and just worn it all his life. <laughs> Judah, I don't know how that could happen. Do you? No, I don't see how it could happen. No. But he did. Uh, his crusade songs, just as I am. He never tried to grow any facial hair. I thought that was interesting. You know, most of I've tried. I've tried. I tried sideburns. I tried. Man, I look at Tyler over here. I was working with him yesterday. I thought, man, if I could grow that, I would. I tried so hard, Tyler, in the 60s and 70s, man. I mean, I let everything grow that could grow. And I looked like a bad skunk. It was just a little frizzy out stuff. And the only thing I finally came down to us was I could grow a pretty good mustache. So I finally got it down to that. And eventually I even took that off. And I thought my daughter was going to disown me when I did. But we made it through the crisis, didn't we, dear? His team, even his team, stayed with him all those years. And over at the side of where their burial site is, uh, George Beverly Shea is buried over there. And uh, Cliff Barrows and his wife are buried right over there near Billy and Ruth Graham. Even their team went all the way with them to the grave. I just, his consistency was just amazing to me when I was there. And in Mark chapter 8, the setting there is that Jesus has just fed the 4,000. And after the people had eaten, in verse 10 it says, He immediately got into the boat with His disciples and they headed back across, back west across the Sea of Galilee for Dalmanutha. That's probably close to, I, I looked at some reference material, and it's close to where the demoniac of Gadara, that, that's a good reference for you. The demoniac, it's right in that same area. So he'd been on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee, so he's traveling over to the western side, about 10 miles across there. Sea of Galilee is about eight miles across at its widest part. So it's more like a big lake, really, and sometimes called the lake. 
sometimes called the Sea of Galilee. Uh, it's 13 miles long and it's uh, top to bottom. So it's not a real big body of water. So here's what happened then when they landed. Mark 8, 11 and 12. Then the Pharisees came out right as they landed. Right as they landed. Then the Pharisees came out and began to dispute with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven, testing him. But he sighed deeply. In his, can you feel that? He sighed deeply in his spirit. Can you feel that? He's traveled across. He obviously has a divine intention involved. He's, trying, he's, he's following God's plan. But these people have to be there to stink up the place. They're just killjoys. And he sighs deep in his spirit. Why does this generation seek a sign? Surely I say, you know, no sign is going to be given to this generation. These Pharisees were just incredible. So in verse 13, it says simply this, he left them. He left them. He went back to the other side where he'd come from, just went back across. You see, family, people make choices. People make choices. We have choices to make. Adam and Eve had choices in the Garden of Eden. We still have choices in life. Our nation makes choices. We've made a choice. And sometimes God's judgment, as I said earlier, is that God leaves people to themselves. Jesus just left them, went back across. I believe he had God's intention in going there. He went there very intentionally. He said, I want to go over to Dalmanutha. But unbelief can hinder God's intentions. Cynicism can hinder God's intentions. Hatefulness can hinder God's intentions. Presumption can hinder God's intentions. But he used the opportunity as they were going back to teach his disciples some arche concerning the faith that he was calling them to walk in, which is sustainable faith. And the first pattern of a sustainable faith that I saw was exactly in what I just read. But I drew this conclusion. It is a faith that is peaceful. I, I searched for that word, peaceful. Because the Pharisees were always striving. They were never peaceful in their pursuits. They were never peaceful in their faith. They were never peaceful in their doctrine. They were argumentative. And they were striving and they were trying to one-up everyone and look better than the other person and competitive. And it drove Jesus away. I was stunned when I read that. It just says he left them. And I sat there and I prayed, Lord, please don't leave America. Please, please don't leave us to ourselves. And they saw themselves as a great example of faith. You see, 
Part of unbelief is delusion. It's delusional thinking that gets us into trouble when we think we're one way and we're really another way. The Pharisees thought they were wonderful. They weren't wonderful at all. The devil, in, 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 your, in your walk with the Lord, you're, you're walking with the Lord, and he'll make you think that you're doing terrible, that you're awful. And you're not doing terrible at all. You're doing well. That's why we need friends. That's why we need real friends, iron sharpening iron friends. But they, they saw themselves as a perfect example of faith. We're going to demand a miracle from him. We'll call his bluff. That's what we'll do. If he is what he says he is, then prove it to us. This is kind of like the, 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 the playground uh, bully that says, I dare you. And Jesus doesn't jump through the hoops of our dares. We got that? Jesus does not jump through the hoops of our demands. Remember what I said to you before? The example I used about that? When you're in a service and the person up front says, there are five people here and each of them is supposed to give $1,000 each right now. You come forward and give that right now. Did I tell you what that's the signal to do? Sit in your seat. Sit on your wallet. Remember that? And I also said this to you. You can tell God I told you to do that. Okay? Remember. Now by peaceful... I don't mean lethargic. I don't mean lazy. I don't mean sluggish or quesarasara, whatever it will be. Will be. That's, not, that's not what I mean. These, these people were saying, we're not going to believe you unless you do another miracle for us. Before you, do, before you bring another sign. And Jesus said, he turned to his disciples, he said, no sign is going to be given to them. They're not going to get a sign. He didn't mean he wouldn't do any more miracles. He meant that their demands were not going to be met. Because it would disparage the sovereignty of God if he were to be bullied by these bullies. And their demands were insatiable. They could never be met. If you did one miracle, they'd want another one. And if you did that, they'd want another one, another one, another one. It's always that way with bullies insatiable. Today, many have a demand of what the church is supposed to be. Uh, we want a pastor who can perform like, like I want him to perform. Uh, we want all the programs that we need personally. We want music that sounds like Hillsong. All that in a bag of chips, please. I'm talking about an attitude which demands more because of a selfishness in our heart. I have kept this, the slide that I'm about to show you right now, I've kept it in my file for quite a few months. Again, I don't even remember the source of it, but I've, it's, 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 been, it's stuck to the back of my brain. And when I got to this point in my notes, I remembered it. And I just wanted to show it to you. No stage, no lights and smoke, no church logo, no flex, no banners, no advertising. Church. Do you see what's going on there? It's probably India, Pakistan, looks like it. 
just a man with a Bible, and he's got some people there beside the road. He stops on his scooter, and he's just reading some scripture to him. Uh, looks like church, doesn't it? Maybe. And the thought occurred to me as I was looking at that, I, I, I found it, I found it on my computer and I looked at it again and I, I said within myself, is it possible that that's maybe going to look more like the 21st century church than we could ever imagine? Because it looks a lot like the church in the book of Acts. Looks a lot like the church in the book of Acts. To be sustainable, one arcade or pattern of our faith needs to be a peaceableness and a simplicity that's just established in our heart and in our soul. Pattern number two, a sustainable faith is guarded against presumption. Look at verses 13 and 14. And he left them, and getting into the boat again, departed to the other side. Now the disciples had forgotten to take bread, and they did not have more than one loaf with them in the boat. Now, a loaf wasn't a loaf. It would have been like a roll, kind of a bigger dinner roll, something like that. It wasn't much at all, just something somebody would have in their pocket, just happened to have in their pocket. I begin to read into this some things that are extra-biblical, I want to just say that. You don't have to believe what I'm getting ready to, the way I'm getting ready to see this, because it is extra biblical. That doesn't mean unbiblical. You understand? Just extra biblical. It just means that I begin to see some things in this. Because I found that the word forgotten was also equally verified in being translated neglected. Now, there's a difference between forgotten and neglected, both are translated from the same word. They forgot food or they just neglected it. Now, there's something I see in the hearts of the disciples here. They had just come from Jesus producing food for 4,000, well, 4,000 men. We'll just say 8,000 people. Just round it off. They've just come from that and in the boat with Jesus. And you can be sure that they had been across the Sea of Galilee many times and always took a sandwich with them. Always took some food with them because of the distance of the trip in a small boat to go that far. And I believe that what may have been going on here is that they were slipping to, into an attitude of presumption that says something like this. No problem. Ah, we don't need to worry about that. We have Jesus on our side. You know, he'll pay the light bill. He's with us. He'll take care of us. You know, everything always comes together. Everything always comes together anyway. All right, we're, we're king's kids. Uh, the grace is there. He'll make a sandwich for us if necessary. We've just seen how much food he's made. And I, I think in America right now, there's a danger of a cockiness and a pride which has engendered an attitude of presumption to think that America will always have God with us, and He'll always be with us, and He'll always make a way for us, and we'll always be okay. You know, I always remember my friend Royce Chapman so many times said, when we'd be in Bible study together, he would remind us and say, you know, America's not in the Bible. Something's going to change. It's not always going to be this way. 
We think we're at the top of the food chain, but it's not always going to be like that. Remember Royce saying things like that? Many of you have been in Bible studies with Royce. Yeah. Remember when the devil tempted Jesus by taking him up into the pinnacle, up to the pinnacle of the temple? And he said, just throw yourself down. Show him your power. Look, there's all these thousands of people around. At that time, there were many people. Jerusalem would have been full of people. Just throw yourself down off the pinnacle of the temple. And he even quoted a portion of the verse of a verse from the Old Testament. Just throw yourself down and show them your power. And Jesus turned to the devil and said, Here's a verse for you. Don't put God to the test. Don't put God to the test. When we start getting presumptuous, we're putting God to the test. We're saying, aren't I great? you got to do this for me. Be careful with that kind of prayer. Be careful with that kind of attitude. Remember in the book of Esther, when Haman had worked out a way politically for all the Jews to be killed? And Mordecai came to Esther, who had become the beautiful wife of the king, and he asked Esther, his niece, to intercede to the king for the Jews. And Esther's response was kind of like this. I can't do that. You don't do that. You don't speak to him unless he asks you to speak. I don't think I can help you, uncle. And Mordecai's response was something like this. Listen, don't forget. You're a Jew too, honey. And you're cute. But you ain't that cute. A sustained faith does not get presumptuous. Oh, we don't have to bring any food. It's okay. He's got us covered. We're king's kids. You know, all the martyrs have been king's kids too. You realize that? They've been king's kids too. I found in life that if we take care of the practical things, we avoid many problems and having to cry out to the Lord in times of adversity. If we take care of practical things, like paying your bills on time. Like taking care of your health. Not wait till you get unhealthy. Take care of your health ongoingly. Yeah. Know where your kids are. Just know where your kids are. <laughs> Bring a sandwich along. And here's a good one. When the police ask you to do something, do it. How about that? That's a good one, isn't it? That'll keep you from having a lot of trouble. When the police tell you to do something, do it. Don't argue with them. Presumption is a problem. And a sustainable faith is always guarded against presumption because we always know that the enemy is between our two ears. And the devil knows how to get in there and push some buttons. Pattern number three, a sustainable faith is all about God's trustworthiness. Verse 15. Then he charged them, saying, Take heed, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. He was talking about where people were putting their trust in those days. 
where people were saying, oh, that's the thing that we need to follow. That's the pattern we need to follow. If you go back to verse 16, you'll see they got off track in their thinking. They, um, in, in what Jesus was saying, they thought he was talking about the food and everything, and he wasn't. He was talking about their faith, their character. He said, beware of the contamination of the Pharisees and of the Herods. Now, I think I, think I found... Hmm, I can't remember if it was two or three times he put those together, but not many. Not many times in the Gospels are the Pharisees and the Herods put together. So I had to do a little research to find out what that was all about. Well, the Pharisees is pretty easy because we've all known what the Pharisees were made of. Quick overview of what Jesus is warning us about the Pharisees is that our faith will be tested in these areas. Number one, they didn't practice what they preached. They simply had one set of rules for themselves, but another set of rules for everybody else. They gave themselves a lot of grace, and yet they demanded a lot of observance from other people and respect from other people, and you've got to be obedient from other people. Their standards were very high from other, for other people. Their standards were very low for themselves especially in private, where nobody was watching. Like when the man was, had been assaulted on the road to Jericho. Don't have to worry about that, because nobody's looking anyway. No. They didn't practice what they preached. The second one is they loved to show off. They just loved to name drop. They were preeners, and they couldn't help themselves with saying, you know, Oh, so-and-so was my friend, and I used to know that person, things like that. They were name droppers. They loved to show off. When they gave their tithe, they rang bells, and they sounded horns, and they said, I'm giving my tithe today. Watch me. See how graciously I do this. And God said, your tithe is a zero in my kingdom. It's a zero. You have your reward, is what he said. Enjoy it. Whatever little, little kick you get from the horn being blown, the bell being rang, enjoy it, because that's all there is. That's all you get. They loved titles. They demanded respect. But they didn't love people. And you know what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13? He said, if you have the faith to move mountains, but you don't have love, it's nothing. That's what he said. He said it's a goose egg. It's nothing. If you have faith enough to... Listen to this. If you have faith that could move mountains and you don't have love, it's nothing, he said. The Pharisees were in love, but they were in love with themselves. That's all they were in love with. They were wonderful in their own eyes, totally deluded in that. What about, the, what about the Herods? That's one that we don't know so much about. I had to find out. What was Jesus warning us about concerning the Herods? Well, the Herods were a family. I think you know that part. A family of leaders who believed that problems could be solved with, particularly with political means. They trusted political means above anything else and would 
try to sway and work with groups of people to achieve what they wanted to achieve. Now, the Herods themselves were carnal. They were terrible reprobates. They were pagan in their belief, but they had some savvy about people. They knew that they needed to please the people, so they had a lot of favor with some leaders of Israel, especially religious leaders. A lot of the religious leaders would have been okay to call themselves Herodians because they drank the Kool-Aid of the Herods. See, if you wanted an expert's opinion, the Herods had it for you. They spoke with man's knowledge. They spoke with strategies that were based on the best thinking of the day, which they gathered unto themselves. Now, the Herods did not bear well with challenge, <laughs> as John the Baptist learned. Behind their velvet glove was hidden a sword. But you didn't see it because they were so good at presenting themselves as the solution for all your problems. We've got it figured out. We know the best thing for you to do. You just do what we're telling you to do and you'll be fine. But if you didn't, behind the scenes, you'll be like John the Baptist and your head will be delivered on a charger. Yeah. John found out. Because John said, like my pastor friends in California are saying, we're not going to do another government shutdown of our services. And the Herods say, oh, really? What do you feel about us taking away your church tax exemption? See, I think that's the next, I think that's the next hammer fall. We're going to find out where heart is, aren't we? Yeah. When we, I just got the notice for our church property here, five and a half acres. We had zero taxes on five and a half acres because we are exempt. We're going to find out where our hearts are when that's taken away. And we have to pay that tax on that five and a half acres. By the way, socialist countries have to do that. Do you understand that? See, most people in America have never lived in a socialist country. I have. I've lived in three socialist countries. I know what socialism is. Ask me about socialism. I can tell you. It's a, it's a sneaky critter. And it'll bite you in the rear. It'll get you. Anybody else here ever lived in a socialist country? Just, just asking. Yeah, okay. Yeah. <laughs> right. Herod says, you know what? We feel like your singing and your worship and that stuff you do when you get together is just, that's not really fitting with our plan and we're just going to have to shut you down. And the Herodians said, he is so smart. Oh my goodness, he's just doing it. He knows best. He's doing it because he loves us. And so they stopped worshiping and they stopped singing because the Herods said, we love you. But if you didn't go along with it, you could find your head off or you could find yourself hanging on a cross like Jesus, who was handed over to Pilate by Herod. Remember that? Yeah. The Herods were lovely people, weren't they? 
A sustainable faith does not rest in how spiritual I look or pretend to be like the Herods. I mean, like the Pharisees, excuse me. Or how well we learn to work with the world like the Herods. It is totally based on God's trustworthiness and our understanding that we are first of all members of the kingdom of heaven. Citizens of heaven is what we are first and foremost. Pattern number four, last one. A sustainable faith looks to God as our source for everything, our source of abundance, everything. Listen to this, verses, beginning at verse 17. But Jesus, being aware of it, said to them, Why do you reason because you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive nor understand? Is your heart still hardened? Having eyes do you not see, and having ears do you not hear? And do you not remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of fragments did you take up? They said to him, Twelve. Also, when I broke the seven for the 4,000, how many large baskets full of fragments did you take up? And they said, Seven. So he said to them, How is it that you don't understand? And I read that again, and I thought, Understand what? I came to a conclusion. Don't know if you would feel the same or not. My conclusion was understand that he is more than sufficient for every situation we face. There were fragments left over in each case of his supply. Nothing is too great for his supply. We just don't need to get into presumption. But nothing is too great for his supply. I was thinking about a scripture portion that defines what I'm talking about today, a sustainable faith, a faith that isn't blown about with the winds of times and with faddishness. And I came to a place of a scripture that's been almost a core passage in my heart for many years. I don't even know how long when I first began to uncover the truth in, these, in this passage in Philippians 4. Verses 11 through 13, Paul said, Not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. I am not need-driven. Do you hear that? I am not going to be need-driven. I'm not speaking in regard to need. I'm not driven by that. For I've learned in whatever state I am to be content. The word content there, I realize I'm pausing, I'm doing a teacherish thing here, but bear with me. The word content there is the Greek word autarkes. It's really a word that Paul borrowed from the Stoics of the day. Paul was not a Stoic. But the Stoics, um, the Stoics used this word to describe emotionlessness. For example, if your mate were to die, you say, I don't feel anything. Euphoria to them was just... Uh, being separate from your feelings, not feeling. It was an unfeeling place where you chose not to feel anything. That was stoicism. Paul used the word to describe self-containment. In other words, sustained from within. I'm not going to be ruled by my environment. My motivations and my strength are going to come from within the well of my own spirit. 
I'm not going to be ruled by the way things are around me. So he said, I have learned to be content. I know how to be abased, and I know how to abound. You know, there's a lot of people that know how to be poor, but they don't know how to be rich. There's a lot of people that know how to be poor. They've done it all their life. They don't know how to handle money. They don't know how to, how to deal with it. When blessing comes to them, they fail the test a lot of times of blessing. Everywhere and in all things, I've learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That is a sustainable faith. That's a faith with corners on it that are square and solid. That's a faith with a foundation that's not going to be blown down the first little hurricane that comes along. It is a faith that will take you all the way to heaven and it will remain solid. It's a simple faith that doesn't require a lot of smoke and a lot of stage lighting. It does not. But then Paul adds this as his caveat in verse 19. And my God shall supply all your need according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. Hallelujah. <laughs> I remember uh, Jesse Duplantis one time said, he's El Shaddai, he's not El Cheapo. <laughs> you know, Jesse, he's funny. He's not El Cheapo. You know, something amazing that happened in our, our three-week journey was that Judy had a friend from her Christ for the Nations days, and she lives in the Washington, D.C. area. So Judy was in touch with her friend, and her friend said, uh, do you know that I'm also a travel agent? She's an interpreter. She does very high-level government interpreting. And she said, do you know I'm also a travel agent? She said, um, we were coming to Charlotte, I think. Yeah, Charlotte, North Carolina. And so she says, you want me to try to arrange a place for you there before you get there? And we're both kind of nervous about it because she's a, a Marriott's expert. And we don't, I don't tend to stay at Marriott hotels. I don't know about you, but that's not the place I normally would stay. I'm more of a Motel 6 or... You know, <laughs> Super 8 kind of guy. And uh, so anyway, good Motel 6s. I don't want any roaches in the room, you know, like that. But, but anyway, so uh, we're kind of driving along toward Charlotte, and she says, uh, you want me to look into a, a Marriott's room there? And we're kind of nervous about it. Oh, yeah, okay. So we had her do it. She got this beautiful room for us at the same price that you would normally pay for about a Super 8. And we kind of thought, wow, it was really nice. I'm not used to that kind of, those kind of rooms. Sweets, sweets. I didn't even know how to spell sweet, you know. So, <laughs> so she, and, and so we reported that to her and kind of went along. And she said, um, where's the next place you're going to be? And so we were traveling. We said, well, we think we're going to get to uh, this, this city. So she looks and she says, um, there's a place there. It's, I, I can get you a room for this amount. And it was an amount that, once again, was just really low. And we said, okay, yeah, do that. So, I mean, and I mean, this happened, I don't know how many times I lost track of them. Every room we walked into, I'd never been in a room like that, other than when some big company paid for it for me. You know, I've had that a few times. But 
I never had stayed in a place like that. I mean, I'm talking multiple rooms, suites, with TVs in different rooms and decks and all that stuff. And I walk into these rooms and I'm going, what on earth? And Judy and I are just the same way. We're just going, man, this is so... She started taking pictures of the rooms, you know. First, she said, I got to get a picture of this before we mess it up, you know. She's going around. She's taking pictures. You know, Judy, she's, she's got pictures on Facebook of everything. Every meal we had, I think, got put on Facebook. I don't know. But um, so she's taking pictures of it. I said, what are you doing? She's saying, I'm taking a picture of this room before we mess it up. <laughs> okay. You know, you can tell we're, it's like Ma and Pa Kittle, you know. We're, we, we, we never had rooms like that before. It was amazing. And our whole trip was that way. I mean, the one time we, well, the one time I remember that we didn't do that was an awful experience <laughs> when some guys were getting in a fight outside the room. And Judy says, do you hear that? And I had my hearing aids off. And I said, hear what? And she said, those men outside, one of them says he's going to kill the other one. So I start to go over the door, typical farm boy. You know, I start to go over the door. I'm only straighten things out. And she said, don't do that. They might shoot through the door. <laughs> so I get away from the door. <laughs> oh, it was crazy, wild. And that room cost us more than those Marriott's rooms. Those bums laying around outside getting themselves drunk. I, let's go back to your friend. <laughs> anyway, that's an example of I will supply your need. It was an amazing thing to us. We didn't plan it at all. It wasn't something that had any forethought. It was just the Lord's gift, just saying, you know what? I want to just bless you with something here. Yes. Thing real important, but, okay. um, but one thing that was just so cute, and she could do that for anybody in here, and that's her job, and she's wonderful, but um, but she said that she told them before we got there that we were newlyweds. <laughs> what? <laughs> so I could just imagine us walking in old <laughs> and they're expecting newlyweds. You know, it just to me, it was just like, oh, I hope. And then she, then later on, we're talking. She said, You're a senior? I go, Yes. And then she started telling them they're newlyweds and they're seniors. And she just got us all kinds of good deals. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, I just thought that was so cute. She, but she, she's just a wonderful girl. It, if you she ever was, travel. she was amazing. Father, thank you so much for our time together. Thank you for all that you're doing in us, through us, and for us. We bless you, Lord. We are a thankful people. We don't want to be like the nine lepers who just went away and never came back and said thank you, and had Jesus say, "Where are the others?" Lord, we don't want to be among those. We are a thankful people. We thank you, Lord, for all that you bring to us, for all that you've done, for all the redemptive works you have done in our lives. We thank you, Lord. And we pray you will guide us and guide our nation in this coming season. Lord, in Jesus' name, amen.